Thank you so much to Pat and the team for leading us to the Lord in worship. I love to speak as worship into worship. That's my conception of what's going on when preaching happens is that preaching doesn't follow worship. Preaching is worship. And so I'm glad to have a little part in what we've been doing already. And just another thank you uh, to all the help here at Saddleback. Thank you so much to Rick and the whole team for letting us be a part of this amazing campus. Let me summarize where we've been and the last two steps we have to go. I said there were five things I wanted to say. Number one, God exists to be God. That is, he exists to uphold and display the infinite value of his glory. And I might comment here that when I think about the term and the reality of holiness as it relates to glory, the way I think is this, and I get this from Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his Why did he shift? Why didn't he say, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his holiness? The reason, I think, is glory is holiness gone public. In other words, holiness is his intrinsic worth and perfection and beauty in himself. When it begins to radiate, the Bible calls it glory. So when God goes public in creation and redemption, it talks mainly about glory streaming out. You see his glory. You don't see his holiness except as it streams in glory. So when I say God exists to be God, God is passionate about upholding and displaying the worth of his, I could say holiness, the worth of his holiness, but, but I, I, I encounter it. It's, it says the heavens are telling the glory of God. So that wind out there is a parable. The, the wind blows where it wills. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. You should see parables of God everywhere on the planet. God is radiating his intrinsic and infinite worth. He is infinite worth. The universe is like a peanut in his pocket. He's God. This universe is as nothing compared to God. God is big, God is great, God is glorious, God is valuable. The universe, he just did it with his twinkie. Pinky. You eat twinkies. Second statement. God summons us into that purpose. He exists to uphold and display his glory for everybody to see and enjoy. And now he, he wants us to join him in that. And so he says, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. Join him. 
Now, we ended last night, I haven't got to point three yet, which was the main discovery, but we ended last night arguing that C.S. Lewis's discovery of point three is the answer to so many objections to the first two points. And I mentioned an objection from Michael Prowse and Brad Pitt and Eric Reese. The objections that the first two make sounds, God, God just sounds like a megalomaniac. That's what he's been called in history. Or Eric Reese called Jesus an egomaniac because he said, you've got to love me more than you love your dad. Like, what? Who are you to talk like that? So is he an egomaniac and is God a megalomaniac because God is totally into magnifying God? And, and the third discovery that I made solved that problem and sets me on a course to point four, which we didn't get to last night, we go to now. But the third point was, if I'm to join God in magnifying him, my life is supposed to make God look good. Great. Then it's a wonderful thing to discover God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in him. So his so-called megalomania, namely he's seeking his glory, he's seeking his glory, means he's ultimately seeking my joy because my joy reaches its consummation in my adoration of him. Why do people go to the Grand Canyon? Not to feel big. It makes you feel small. It makes you feel fragile. But people go there. They pay money to go feel small. And those illustrations about Never felt more alive, never felt more insignificant. What is that? Selling granola bars to people's desire to be insignificant? Meaning, if you get close enough to something majestic, you feel better than if you try to be majestic. They're about to sell trips around the moon, right? They're going to try to, that's the new, the new cruise. <laughs> and you'll get on a ship and you'll, you'll go up around the moon. People will pay money to do that. They'll risk their life to do that. Why? Because the buzz you will get on the backside of the moon will be better than being God. It really will be. That's why we were made. So, when God lifts himself up and says, look. When Jesus stretches out his arms and says, look. He's loving us. He's taking us to the fullest joy imaginable. It, he just happens to be God. He, he can't direct us anywhere else for joy. If he directed us anywhere else besides to himself, he would be cruel. He's just stuck with being glorious. And he will give us everything a human being can possibly have for joy if we will have it. 
Which is why his so-called megalomania is not a sin. It's not wickedness. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the most loving act. You can't copy him in this. So people who make the simplistic connection, like if, if Piper came here and said, look at me, look at me, everybody loved me, everybody liked me, everybody praised me, you'd say he was sick, so God must be sick. That's bad logic. He's God. I'm not. If I said praise me, you should leave. You should say he's sick. But if God says praise me, you should look around to see, well, is there any other thing that is above him, which if I praised it, I would have more satisfaction? The answer is no. He's beckoning you to have your deepest experience of joy. You were made to know him, love him, enjoy him, be amazed at him, be stunned at him. Just think when you have real clear moments, late at night, early in the morning, whenever it happens to you, think about why human beings do what they do in regard to business. I mean bigness. Why do they go certain kinds of movies? Why do people go to get scared at movies? Why, why does falling out of windows and jumping out of planes and all these explosions. Why, why do people like this? I saw a trailer of the Fast Five. <laughs> or Speedy Five, or whatever it's called. And I was just blowing up. Everything's blowing up. Crashes and big... Why? There's a reason. You're made for God. You're made to see galaxies come into being. Not stupid little movies with car crashes. Good grief. Get a life! Or get a telescope. I mean, there's some big stuff in the universe. And it's not in movies. They do their best. And, and, and it's all a parable. It's just, if you just think clearly about what human beings are aching for. And we've seen it. We've seen it. So, number three was God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And it, it solves the problem of the accusation of megalomania. And it now leads us to a way of life. And the implication of it is that you should spend all of your life striving to be maximally happy in God. This is why I call my philosophy of life Christian hedonism. It's a controversial phrase but and you don't have to like it or or use it at all the reality is what matters not the phrase what i mean by christian hedonism is once you discover that god is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied then you must set your face like flint to be most satisfied every day so that's where we're going to go for half an hour or so and then we'll close with the last point which will be on that path is the only way to love people, which sounds exactly the opposite of what it is. Because if I tell you on the one side, devote your whole life to your happiness, somebody's going to say, that's the opposite of love. Because love seeks not its own. 
If you set yourself out to be as happy as you can be all the time, and you're thinking about be happy as all you can, you're going to love people. You're going to use people. And I'm saying no. No, no, no. Not if you understand the biblical way of pursuing your maximum joy. So those are the two things left to do. Before I give you uh, 10 biblical pointers to this fourth statement that you should pursue your joy all the time in God, I want to preempt a misunderstanding which is one of the most common early on when, when I began to write and teach on this, namely that in the first edition of Desiring God, there was no chapter on suffering. In every other edition since then, there's been one. And I realized that what I say is just so easily misunderstood as a kind of breezy, praise God anyhow, uh, be happy all the time, smile no matter what, uh, just so naive. No naive in a world like ours. So I'm going to just preface it with some texts and then my own experience and tell you where I am right now. I'm going to go see an old friend this afternoon, as soon as we're done here, and drive up to Alhambra, however you pronounce it, and uh, and see my the man who's responsible for everything I'm saying today. And I'm going to ask him the question um, of how you put all this together. See what he says at age 88 or so. Romans 12:15. Weep with those who weep. If you know enough people, that means you'll always be crying. Romans 2, 9, 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for my lost kinsmen. Paul, unceasing anguish. Aren't you the one who said rejoice always? And again I say rejoice. That's what I'm going to ask my professor. How do you do that? Unceasing anguish. Know anybody who's lost? Care about them? Got anguish. It's your child especially. Or your dad. Second Corinthians eleven twenty eight. I have the daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. Daily pressure. Daily anxiety for all the churches. Paul. Mr. Joy. Mr. Joy. Second Corinthians six ten. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's the banner that flies over our ministry, my church, and my life. When you're young and you have a little cluster of friends and you're all happy, this doesn't quite make as much sense, but as you begin to walk through dark times and you know more people and then more people begin to get broken and get sick and, and, and go crazy and, and get mentally ill and and lose children and just life just becomes one series of losses and struggles then the statement sorrowful yet always rejoicing becomes the challenge of your life how do you do that that just sounds like emotional schizophrenia doesn't it sorrowful yet always rejoicing but if the bible says rejoice with those who weep and 
and with joy, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, you always know people who are happy and you always know people who are weeping. So you have to always be weeping and always be rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 7, 5, afflicted at every turn, fightings without and fears within. 2 Corinthians 1, 8, we were utterly burdened beyond strength so that we despaired of life itself. Those are just a sampling of descriptions of mature Christians in the New Testament. Okay, so I'm just preempting anybody walking out of here to say, Piper's got this joy thing. And he's just naive about suffering. He's just naive about real life. So right now in my life, age 65, wondering, you know, okay, what am I supposed to do with the next chapter? How long shall I stay at Bethlehem? Uh, what will it look like if I'm, do I preach till I drop or should I quit while I'm strong? And just, all that piece right now looks very opaque to me. And then I've got these clusters of people in my life, many of whom are broken. And not where I want them to be, church, family, uh, out there. And I, I just feel so heavy with so many things so much of the time. So that I said last night, joy is a, a, a warfare. It's something to be fought for. All right. And here's to help you fight. Point number four is you should always, all the time, be on a quest for your maximum joy in God. Always. On a quest, pursuing, tracking down maximum joy in God. Please hear me say, in God, not in His gifts. It's not a sin to rejoice in God's gifts. Gives you a wife, gives you health, gives you food on the table, gives you some success in business. Not bad to be happy about that. But you're an idolater if your happiness terminates on that. What's at the bottom? Give a whole talk at the Passion Conference. What's at the bottom of your life? Down, 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 down you go with all the things that make you happy. What's the bottom where you stand? And in the bottom is God. The bottom is Jesus. And all his gifts there gravy to lose them all and to have him only as gain okay so you should pursue joy in him for these 10 reasons let me get out my clock here and put it up here because this is this is not going to work if i don't if i don't have some warning how, what time it is Go. How do you tell it to go? <laughs> All right. Use present. I just downloaded this this morning. <laughs> there it goes. Okay. Cool app. <laughs> it doesn't work. Oh, there it goes. Okay. Number one. The Bible commands you to rejoice. Psalm 100, serve the Lord with gladness. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. 
Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. So there's the simplest answer. Why should you pursue your joy? The Bible commands you to serve the Lord with gladness. It doesn't say 23 hours out of the day. It doesn't say except when you're sad. It doesn't say when life is easy. Just do it. Go after it. It doesn't mean we're going to fail. I mean, fail every day. This is a quest. This is, this is where you know what you're after, not what you've arrived at, but what you're after. Delight yourself in the Lord. That's number one. Number two, there's 10 of these. The Bible teaches that pastors, so we've got a few pastors here probably, the pastors should work for the joy of their peoples, which must mean that their people should go for that. So here's the key verse, 2 Corinthians 1.24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. We work with you. Isn't that amazing that Paul would define his apostolic mission as working with them for their joy? I just think that's amazing. That this apostle who's seen the Lord and caught up into the seventh heaven... And knows what he's about. He's going to lay his life down for Jesus. Describes the purpose of his life as helping people be happy in God at the cost of their lives, if necessary. It's amazing. He said it another time. Philippians chapter 1 verse 25. Where he said, I don't know whether I'll stay or go, but convinced of this. I will remain and continue with you all for your advancement and joy in the faith. I'm going to stay on the planet instead of going to be with Jesus where I'd like to be for your joy. That's what pastors should think. Every sermon, even if it's a sermon on sin and repentance and hell and judgment and fire and pain should be aiming to help their people stay rock solid, contented in God through it all. That's the goal, which means pastors are constantly spreading a feast for their people to eat and be glad. Number three, the Bible shows that we should pursue our joy by the way it conceives of faith or the way it defines faith. And I'll just give you one verse, John six thirty five. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, let's go back and say it slowly, and you see how this parallel works. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me, so it's the spiritual movement of the soul, not body. He who draws near to me in his soul, comes to me, shall never hunger. So we're coming to eat. And then the parallel statement is, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And he replaces the word come with believe. Come, eat, believe, drink. And that parallelism should tell us what believing is. Believing in Jesus is a coming to him to eat and drink for a soul's satisfaction. That's what I get from John 6.35. That's what believing is. Not telling people that is why there's so many nominal Christians who have had zero change in their lives. Because they're not believing. 
They're doing what devils do. They're believing. Facts. They're not believing by coming to eat and coming to drink to the soul's satisfaction. Believing is discovering bread when you're hungry and discovering a fountain when you're dying of thirst and putting your face in it. Yes, thank you. That's faith. All this intellectualistic, hear the facts, sign the card, join the church. That's not faith. To have faith, you have to see glory, bread, food, water, gold, and want it. Go there. Get it. Rest in it. I found the end of my quest. I'm spending the rest of my life trying to be satisfied right here called Jesus. That's number three. The nature of faith. Number four. The nature of evil tells us that we should pursue our joy in God all the time. What is evil? How would you define evil? I'll give you, there's lots of different definitions, but here's one from Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two great evils. Now, what are they? Number one. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. That's the one. And they have hewn, dug. They have dug out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what's evil? Evil is tasting God's all-satisfying fountain and saying, don't like it. I don't like it. And turning to the world and spending your life scratching in the dirt of sin and eating dust and liking it. That's evil. All evil is a rejection of God's all-satisfying fountain and a enjoyment of something lesser. That's what evil is. Which means, if you don't want to be evil, go to the fountain and drink and drink and say, ah, ah, it's called worship. We call that worship. Drink. Ah, that's worship. That's what we should be doing on every Sunday morning, which is why I don't like it. When pastors say, we'd have a better service here if people come to give instead of to get. Everybody's coming to get. And what we all have a people come to give on Sunday morning. Let's see. Baloney. I want hungry people. Starving people. I don't want them to come to give me anything or give God anything. I want them to come on a quest to get God and all of God they can get. That's what worship is for. And my job and the, and the lead worshipers is to, is to put a table and say, so people can say, yes, yes, give me more. I'll say more. Now, okay, back up. Don't want to be too hard on people who, who, who say this give language. It is appropriate once you have drunk at the fountain to give praise. Okay, if that's what they mean, all right. But I fear that's not what they mean. That's why I get bent out of shape about this. I think God is honored 
by broken people gathering together desperate for God. Just desperate. Rather than full, happy, bubbly people who gather and look like everything's totally okay. And, and God, what, where, 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 you, he, we got him at home. And, and we're coming here to tell everybody that's true. That would be okay, I suppose. It's just not reality. Reality is God is greatly honored when he's treated like a fountain and like living bread and everybody coming into this room is about to die of thirst. And if they don't get him, they die. That's a huge honor to God. That's number four, the nature of evil. Number five, the nature of conversion sets us on a quest to pursue God and pursue our joy in him. Matthew thirteen forty four, little teeny parable, one verse. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered it up. And then in his joy, apakaros, for the Greek lovers, in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. That's conversion. You're walking through a field. You stub your toe on something. You scrape away. It's an old chest. Been there a long time, evidently. You open the chest. It's full of gold. It could be worth millions of dollars. You cover it, close over, and evidently there's some kind of legal proceeding. Like if you own the field, what's in the field is yours. I mean, I assume that explains why I bought the field. So he runs off. He's like, I buy the field. How much does the field cost? Eighty thousand dollars. Eighty thousand. How am I going to get eighty thousand? Sell my car. Oh, sell my kids. The point of the parable is nothing is as precious as the king. When he says the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's kind of a general like. The kingdom of heaven is like to be in the kingdom is to have a king that valuable. So to be converted is to not make a bad deal and get a bad reward, but to get a treasure. We, we have in the last 10 years at our church elevated the, the treasure language of the Bible very high because I think of all the words that I can know that help unpack the nature of saving faith like we just talked about, treasuring Christ is as good as I can do at this stage in my life. To treasure Christ is what it means to be converted. Once you were treasuring the world, once you were treasuring money, once you were treasuring family, once you were treasuring what the world treasures, good things and bad things, and Jesus was boring and disinteresting and mythological or whatever, and now because of new birth and the work of the Holy Spirit and this thing called conversion, he's precious to you. That's conversion. He's a treasure to you. 
And now you devote the rest of your life to know him and enjoy him, to treasure him. I'm so glad treasure is a noun and a verb. Really helps. When you have a treasure, what should you do with it? Treasure it. And if you wake up in the morning and you happen to be treasuring something else more, you got work to do. Work. I work for your joy. And we'll be talking a little more about what. That's number five. Number six, the, Bi- the Bible threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. That was a quote from uh, Jeremy Taylor that I read in C.S. Lewis 30 years ago. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. And I thought, that's clever. Is it biblical? Here's, here's the verse that it comes from. This is Deuteronomy 28, 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart, therefore you will serve your enemies. That's a threat. You're going to serve your enemies. Why? What did I do? You didn't serve God happily. I'll read it again. Because you did, Deuteronomy 28, 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart, therefore you will serve your enemies. Number seven, paradoxically, this is one of the most important ones because it's an, it's an answer to an objection. The, the very first objection that a Bible-saturated person will give to Christian hedonism is this objection, namely it contradicts the teaching of Jesus to deny yourself. So my seventh point is, paradoxically, the Bible's teaching about self-denial teaches us to seek our fullest joy in God. Get that? Paradoxically, the Bible's teaching about self-denial, and it's real. I'm not contradicting it. It's real. There's a place for it. The question is, what does it mean? That teaching impels us to seek our fullest joy in God all the time. And here are a few passages. The passage that's usually brought up to me is one like Mark eight thirty four. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So let's stop right there and say, see, this whole talk, you're spending the whole morning telling these people how not to be disciples. Because Jesus said, if you want to come after me, deny yourself. Take up your, your electric chair and your gallows and your gas chamber and your lethal injection and, and follow me and it's going to cost you everything. And, and, and my response to that is, keep reading. Read the next verse. So let's keep reading. For, this is his argument for why you should take up your cross and deny yourself. For, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What's the argument? What's the argument? The argument is you don't want to lose your life, do you? 
Well, then lose it. That's the argument. And so you got to dig here. You got to figure out, okay, what do you mean? I don't want to be lost. And he's arguing. He doesn't want you to be lost. So he's arguing that you won't be lost. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And I want you to save it. If he didn't want you to save your life, he wouldn't argue like this. Would he? No, he wouldn't. He wants you to save your life. So lose it. So we got to figure out, why is that not double talk? And there are other passages that show why it's not double talk. For example, how does he say it in John 12? John 12, 25. Listen to this. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world, interesting addition, will keep it to eternal life. Now what's the argument? If you love your life, you're going to lose it. If you listen to John Piper tell you to seek your happiness in all these ways, you're going to lose your life. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. He who hates his life in this world will keep it. That is, love it forever. So he must mean losing your life to gain your life is losing your life the way Matthew 13, 44. He sold everything he had and bought that field. Losing anything you have to lose on this planet in order to have the fullest enjoyment of Jesus now and forever. And it may be everything. In fact, you must forsake everything Jesus said in Luke 14, 33. He who does not renounce everything he has cannot be my disciple. You got to let everything go. Nothing is clutched. I got to have this and Jesus or I can't be happy. No, 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 no. You got to let it go. Now, he may not require that you not have a house or a car or health, but he might. At any moment, he might take your house away with a tornado just flat as a pancake. Those pictures on Big Picture, Boston Globe, unbelievable. Flat neighborhood, gone. Take it away just like that. Or a big earthquake that would just make this campus right here look like rubble. You could do that in three minutes from now. And we gotta say, that's okay. That's okay. You gotta be willing to let that go. You wanna be a disciple of Jesus? That's gotta be okay. Your health. People ask me, since I had cancer five years ago, they ask me, how's your health? I say, I don't have a clue. (laughs) I I feel fine. But I felt fine the day before the biopsy. You don't know how you are. I don't know how I am. People say, how are you? Say, I feel fine. That's all you know. (laughs) That's my answer. I have no idea whether I have cancer. You don't either. You've got to be okay with that to follow Jesus. There's huge things we got to give up. You're going to have to 
we're 60s, my wife and I are in our 60s, and we just talk to each other, we say, you know what, since we turned 60, in fact, it started a lot earlier, life is just one series of losses. That's an overstatement. It just feels like that sometimes. The word just is the overstatement. Life is a series of losses. It is. My hair's gone. <laughs> my eyes are gone. She, she says, I can't hear. <laughs> she talks softer when she turns 60. Isn't she? Let me give you another. We're still on point seven of why the real self-denial that God requires of us is not ultimate self-denial. He never, never, never says what you need to sacrifice in order to have me is you have to sacrifice me. He never says that. So Philippians 3 is Paul's way of saying this. Whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss. This is Philippians 3, 7 and 8. For the sake of Christ, I count everything to be loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So I'm saying yes, yes, yes to self-denial. If it means that, which is what Jesus meant by it. I count everything as loss. So God in your life will call you to some real sacrifices. Oh, yes, he will. Some of you, and I do pray this happens. If, you, if you're wondering, this may be God's word for you. Some of you should go to that people group you've been praying about that does not have the gospel. Could be a pocket of people right in L.A., like the Somalis in Minneapolis, 80,000 Muslims with maybe six believers. It may not cross an ocean, but it may be. Syria, Libya, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, northern India, China, Tibet, Mongolia, North Korea. It may be. Now that will involve huge sacrifices. If I perish, I perish. I love Esther, right? She said that. That's, that's the celebrative high point of the book. If I perish, I perish. And you just love her. I want to give her a big hug. Love your kind of woman. <laughs> Beauty is vain and charm is deceitful. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You just love Esther types. If I perish, I perish. Link arms with a husband or be single. And so I'm into the face of the devil with God's spirit. So yeah, there's self-denial. It really is. Deny yourself tin so you can have gold. Deny yourself brackish water in the gutter so you can have a holiday at the sea. Number eight. Bible, the Bible teaches that our gladness in weakness magnifies the power of Christ. Gladness in weakness magnifies the power of Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Amazing. That's, that's, that's the, everything I have to say in a verse. 
You want the power of Christ in your life. And you want it to rest on you like a glory so that people see Jesus is powerful in that person's life. How does that happen? Be weak. And be happy about it. Because the world just doesn't know what to do with that. They can't explain it. Let me read it again. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I can't give you a concrete example. Rick Warren has strengths that I don't have. I mean, unbelievable strengths that I don't have. One of them is the guy, if he wants to, reads a book a day. He told me he used to do that. He hasn't had time recently. (laughs) Book a day? I mean, seriously. I I didn't start reading until I was in the 11th grade. Except picture books. <laughs> to this day, I cannot read any book. I don't care if it's a novel or philosophy book faster than I can talk. 250 words a minute. So. That's it. You know what it takes me to read a book? Weeks. Now, should I be jealous? <laughs> don't ask me, am I jealous? I said, should I be jealous? <laughs> No, because I should all the more gladly boast in my weaknesses. God has helped me. You've all got these weaknesses. Just take them by the throat and say, all right, God, why, why? I'll just do whatever I can with this. So, you know what I can do? I can study a paragraph and write about it and preach about it. That's what I can do. I can take a paragraph and ring it and ring it and ring it until every juice is dropped out of it and I can just spray it all over everybody. <laughs> and so I, to this day, I have to kick myself not to be upset that God cut me off at the legs in reading. <laughs> he did. I, I, I only know little glimpses of why he did it. And I could just, the list would be quite long. If you stack up a Warren and a pipe beside each other, Warren can do this, and Warren can do this, and Warren can do this, and I'm thinking, I just want to go home, you know? <laughs> and, and then you, you may feel that way about me or something, you know, or, or the person next to you, or we just all have these weaknesses and we get really frustrated. I'm not tall enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm, I've got this funny nose. I'm just, I just... Look, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Would you please be okay with the way God made you? And just lay envy down. Lay jealousy down. It's a burden that's just not worth carrying. You are you. Just you. Little old you. Little insignificant, wonderful you. Just be okay and then just take it and, and say, okay. You made no mistake. You made no mistake. And I'm giving every little crummy, weak thing I've got for your maximum use. And oh, man. Does he love that attitude? So that's number eight. The Bible teaches that we should be glad in our weakness because when we are, the power of Christ rests on me. The last two, I'm going to skip, nine and ten, because they're part of the last part of this 
message, and we, we need to really run in order to do point number five. So point number four, we just finished. First point, God loves being God and devotes all of his energies all the time to uh, upholding and displaying the infinite worth of his glory. Number two, God summons us, calls us, commands us, join me in this, live for my glory, live to make me look good. And number three, God is most glorified. He, that's accomplished when I'm most glad in him. Therefore, number four, strive to be maximally happy in him all the time, in him, in him, because it may cost you your life when all you'll have is him. And you should not lose any joy when you lose everything but him. So that's all four, and we're at number five. I argue against the apparent contradiction that a life devoted to your happiness will produce selfishness instead of love. It won't. If you get what I've said in these first four, you will now become a radically, sacrificially loving person ready to lay down your life for people around you. Starting with your wife and your kids, husband, kids, starting right there in the little inner circle, I'm laying down my life. You're going to go there if you get what I'm saying. And then the people nearby, then the church, then the world, the people you don't like, the enemies, you're going to start just living for others. How can that be when I've just told you to devote all your time to be as happy as you can be? So here are the texts. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 if you have a Bible. Otherwise, you can just listen. 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 3 and verse 8. This is a picture of love. So I'm now trying to define love because I've just said you're going to become a loving person if you get this. We need to define love because the world has all kinds of definitions of love. Here's what I mean because I think it's what Paul means and he's the inspired writer. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he's writing to Corinthians. They're down in the bottom of Greece. Macedonia is up there where Philippi and Thessalonica are. And grace has been shown there. And he's telling the people down here about that so that they will be generous givers to the poor in Jerusalem when he comes to take the offering. That's what's going on. So I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. On their part, now drop down to verse 8. I say this, I'm telling you all this about them, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, namely those Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. I go down to verse 8 to pick up the word love. Paul is calling what he just described as love. So now I've got a picture of love. So let's go back and squeeze it. What is love? Here are the pieces. The grace of God was shown in these churches. So grace came down. Sovereign, almighty, transforming, divine, blood-bought, cross-centered, Christ-exalting grace came down and took hold of these people. And what, what happened? 
affliction increased. Verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, joy increased. Their abundance of joy. Poverty did not go away. Their extreme poverty. And the joy overflowed with a wealth of generosity. And Paul calls that love. So can we put it in a sentence? Here's mine. I've got two. Give you the simple one and then the more complex one. Love is the overflow of joy in God, grace, God's grace. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. That's my definition of love from this text. You get other definitions from other texts, that's this text. Love, according to verse 8, it's called love, is the overflow. He calls it overflow, right? It, it overflowed, verse 2. I'm getting that word from the text. It's the overflow, their joy, that's the subject, and the verb is overflow. So joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That's for the poor in Jerusalem that he's collecting the money for. So love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. Now, here's the more complex sentence. One of the reasons I, I choose another sentence is because overflow may sound a little bit passive. You wish it were. You wish love were passive. That is, you wish it were spontaneous. Like, it's just always overflowing out of my life. So like, I got fountain. You wish that. Um, however, it isn't always that way. So my other sentence is, love is the grace-enabled, get that from verse 1, the grace-enabled impulse to expand itself by extending itself to others. The grace-enabled impulse. Remember last night I said if you've got a high-pressure zone in here called joy, and you bump up against a low-pressure zone called need, lostness, Poverty, pain, sickness, weeping. What happens when a high-pressure zone of joy meets a low-pressure zone of need? Wind. And I said, what's the name of the wind? Love. That came from this text. That little image came from this text. Their joy inside. But now that wind sometimes has to be prayed out, pushed out, cried out. It doesn't always just as spontaneous as you'd like it to be. There's an impulse that comes. The more authentic your joy in God is. Now test yourself on this. This is why you won't become a selfish person on the basis of the last uh, hour. The more authentic your joy in that Jesus is, the more it will have this impulse to push itself out to include others in it. It will want to be bigger. It will be near a need and it will not be content. So here comes the priest and the Levite and they see the guy in need and they walk by on the other side. This is no overflow at all. What's wrong with him? They're not delighting in the God of mercy. The Samaritan, he comes by and something, some, I, can't, I, can't, I can't leave him. I can't leave him. I want him to be well forever. Oh, how important it is in all of our good deeds to want people's fullest good, not temporary good. That is, we want their salvation. 
Evangelicals care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. They don't walk by. They don't walk by and say, I got a meeting. They, they say, I want this, what I know of Jesus, what I love of Jesus, my contentment in Jesus. I want you in it. I want you in it. I've got health. I want you healthy. I've got eternal life. I want you to have eternal life. I want you in it. Because when you're in it, mine is bigger. Sounds selfish? It's called love. Go over to chapter 9, verse 7. See it confirmed. Each one must give as he has made up his mind. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, if he loves a cheerful giver, what would it be called if you said, giving what's important and how you feel about your giving doesn't matter? What what would you call that? I'd call it sin. Or audacious disobedience or God you're fool or something like that God says I love cheerful giving which means as the plate is coming down the row and you got your checkbook in your hand he doesn't just want your check he wants your happiness in the writing of the check that's the goal may not be there but it's the goal and if it's not there should you write the check? Hmm. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe so. The maybe not would be, if you're writing it so that the two people on either side will think you're a giver, you're a hypocrite, and Jesus hates it. So you shouldn't write it. If your heart is saying, I'm so sorry, Jesus, that my heart is not in this, and that I'm loving this new iPod I want to buy more than I want to give this thing to you and have the mission go forward. I'm just so sorry. I feel that way right now that I would like you in the writing of this check to restore to me the joy of my salvation and my service. So yes, I'm going to write it even though I don't feel happiness in it. That's not hypocrisy. That's not hypocrisy. That's pathway to pleasure and hoping God will restore the joy in due time Um, Acts chapter 20 verse 35 we just have a few more minutes and I'm being selective this is a very important one in my own history might prove the same for you Acts 20, verse 35. Paul is talking to the elders on the beach in Miletus who've come down from Ephesus. And he's trying to motivate them to care for the flock and be good lovers of the people that they're in charge of. Verse 35, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now that last phrase, it is more blessed to give than to receive, quoting Jesus, means 
If you don't give, you won't be as happy ultimately as if you do give. Blessedness here is a, a experiential reality of being satisfied, contented, enriched, loved, peaceful, just blessed. You'll be blessed if you give. If you don't, your blessing shrivels up. So be a giver. Be a lover for the sake of the blessing. Now that is, that causes ethicists to gag. I did my doctoral dissertation on Jesus' love command and spent months and months reading on ethical motivation, 1971 through 74. And over and over, I would read these philosophical ethicists and these theological, ethical thinkers who said things like, um, it is right to get a reward for loving people. It is wrong to want a reward for loving people. I read that everywhere. And I would come to this verse and I would say, Jesus, if that's true, help me. Because this verse seems to say the opposite. This verse says, help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus, wouldn't it have to say, if those ethicists are right... Wouldn't it have to say, help the weak, forgetting the words of the Lord Jesus? How he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Because if I remember them, I'm going to be motivated the way he said I should. He said, you're going to get blessing if you go to the hospital. You're going to get blessing if you stop and help the person fix their tire. You're going to get blessing if you go serve on a short-term in the Congo. You're going to get blessing. And, and he doesn't seem to say, no, I said it, but don't believe it. Get it out of your mind as soon as you can. Because it's going to contaminate your motives and turn them into selfishness. I just, I just can't make that work. Or if I go to, to Luke 14, verse 14, where it says, um, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the lame, the blind, the naked, for they cannot repay you. You know what the next line is? For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Like, well, don't tell me that. It's going to ruin everything. I was going to be, I was going to be so self-sacrificing. And I was going to be so selfless when I had the banquet. And I knew they couldn't repay me. And now you've told me God's going to repay me. And I just felt blasphemous to believe what they were saying. I, just, I felt like I had to say to Jesus, you're a bad teacher. You're just ruining my motives all the time by telling me how good it's going to go for me. And in fact, not just telling me, but arguing that I should do more good because of how much blessing is going to come to me. And I I think Jesus responded by saying, you don't have to believe those guys. You can believe me. Okay. So now here's, here's the question then. If you're going to blow those guys off, I mean, they've got the PhDs. If you're going to blow those guys off, You need an answer to the question, so, number one, why would people feel loved 
if you're loving them for your happiness? And number two, why wouldn't it be manipulative and you're using them? They've got to have answers for those questions. Because this, this text says, um, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And therefore, go ahead, serve the weak. Stay up late. Work with your hands. Care for them. Be patient with them. Because there's going to be a great blessing. Now, here's my answer to, to the first one. You go to the hospital. This is me. And I'm not wanting to go. Let's pretend I'm just, I'm ticked that I got the phone call and I have to go to the hospital. None of my other staff is available and I've got to go make this call because Mildred just had a heart attack and they don't know if she's going to live. And my attitude is rotten. And so I'm in the elevator. It's on fourth floor at Abbott Northwestern and I'm going up in the elevator and I'm praying, God, please, please, this is a bad attitude to go in there. I need to be going because I delight to help her. Delight to help her. I got to want it. I got to enjoy being here for her. So I walk into the room and God has done this. This is not a made up story. God has done this so many times for me. Walk in the room and there she is, little mask on. And you don't know how she's doing. You walk over, you put your your hand on her arm, and and she wakes up. And all the old people do this. The young young people never talk like this. She says, "Oh, Pastor, you didn't have to come." (laughs) The young people say, "It's about time." (laughs) You didn't have to come. Now, if I said to her, I know, and I didn't want to come, and I wish I weren't here. Now, so if I said, I I didn't want to come, and I wish I weren't here, but I'm supposed to because I'm a pastor, how would she feel? She, She wouldn't feel loved. Well, what should I say? I mean, what would make her feel loved? I I should say, I know, Mildred, but you know what? It's a great delight to me to stand by you and bring the word of God to you. And it just fills me with joy to share hope with you. Now, she would not say, fills you with joy. All you care about is your (laughs) self-happiness. She wouldn't say that. Why? Because there's something about wanting to love people, finding your joy in loving people, finding your joy increased by loving people, that doesn't make them feel you're selfish. It makes them feel you're real. You love. You really love. You're not here because you're a pastor. You're here because you get joy in bringing blessing. Get, get, get joy in bringing blessing. This is like Paul said. That's not selfish. The answer to the second question is, like, How is this not using her? How is this love when I'm doing it because it makes me so glad? And the answer is really quite simple. Her hope and her joy is the enlargement of my gladness. I'm drawing her into what I'm after. I'm not saying, I want this, I step on you to go there. 
See you. I got my happiness. You can just do whatever now. That's not at all the feeling. The point is, you don't step on her. You pick her up. And in picking her up and sharing the gospel and giving her hope for this last hour maybe of her life, your joy is getting bigger and bigger because she's in it. She doesn't resent that. (laughs) That's love. That's love. Love between a husband and a wife, love in churches, is when my joy is in your joy. And when your joy goes up, my joy gets bigger. And therefore, when I pour myself out for you at some cost to myself in the middle of the night or whatever, yeah, there's self-denial in it, but it's for the sake of my, our joy together getting bigger. I think that's why God created churches and not just individual silo Christians to have contented hearts in him and not even relate to each other because the joy in him gets bigger when somebody else's joy in him combines with it and we go up. So please, we're done. I have to wrap it up. I've got a zillion more things to say. I'm so glad it's in a book, so you can just go there. Um, And we'll have Q&A and you can pursue it further on any of these things you want. But don't, please don't say that these first four points, which terminated in you're pursuing your joy maximally all the time because God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him, please don't say that leads to a life of self-centeredness. It leads to a a life of Christ-centeredness and other-centeredness in Christ. And the pursuit of your joy is not by using others to go somewhere else, but by folding more and more people into your joy so that yours gets bigger and bigger as it includes theirs. So, last word here before we take a little break and then do the Q&A. Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. At whose right hand are pleasures forevermore? Or, as I hope maybe God gave me in my devotions this morning from Psalm 40 for you, let those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord, not great is the salvation. Let those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. He shed his blood to bring us to the Lord. The Lord is the end of our quest. He's our joy. Delight yourself in the Lord. All the gifts that he gives are secondary. And he's primary. So, Father, I pray that we would become so profoundly satisfied in you that we could let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, your kingdom is forever, that we would be able to let goods and kindred go, and in letting them go, spend our lives loving people. Just embracing more and more people, folding more and more people into the full range of joy that you give now and will bring completely at the end of the age. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.